0: Good morning. The scripture for today comes from Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. And also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is God's word. Oh, hey, I'm not ready. Good to meet you all. I'm Tommy. I'm
1: over here. I'm coming to the center in just a second. Here I am. Hey, how is everybody? So I'm I'm just planning on giving him longer and longer pieces to read every week. Until one week, I don't show up, and he reads the whole time. <laughs> and that'll be fun. Um, all right, so, you can go brighter with that. I don't want to see anybody. Thank you. <laughs> the more and more people show up, the more nervous I get, and and the more opportunity I have to mess up in front of more and more people. So, um, hey, so my name's Tommy. I'm glad you're here. If it's your first time, what we do is we go through straight through a book of the Bible, we pick one, and we just um, shoot all the way through, and, and this is about session 25 or 26 in the book of Genesis. And um, I'm not really going to discuss the end of chapter 19. Last week we did, we did Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and there's a little blip at the end that sort of talks about the end of Lot's line, and um, it doesn't end well. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's just, I'm not really going to go into all of it. It's, it's the same thing Genesis has done over and over and over again, where it says, here's, here's two brothers, in this case, brother-in-law's, um, one of them followed God, one of them didn't, and here's what happens. And so um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into uh, chapter 20. And um, if you have any questions about 19, I guess we can hang out and, and talk about it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to 20, because we have a, a big chapter here. So let's pray, and let's get, let's get into this. Father, we love you. Um, we ask for your mercies and your grace and your wisdom upon us and our hearts and our minds. Um, give us not only uh, knowledge, but the wisdom um, on what to do with with this knowledge um, that you uh, bring to us, God, I thank you so much for this, these books, these ancient words that you have preserved for thousands of years, uh, so that we could sit here and, and read them and and interact with them and and um, show us something that we need to see, so show us something new, give us a, a more accurate picture of ourselves and a more accurate picture of 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 you and your son jesus and and what life is all about. We love you, God, we thank you in your name. Amen. All right, so, um, chapter 20. Uh, this, this might seem a little familiar to you. Maybe you've, you've been with us sort of this journey, and, and, and we got here today, and he goes into a city called Garar, and he, uh, he says his wife's his sister, and um, it causes a bunch of problems, and yes, we've, we've already been through this. This has already happened. This is a deja vu moment. They haven't changed something in the matrix. This really is happening again. Um, this, uh, this happened back in Pharaoh's land in, in chapter 12. Um, the exact same thing. Um, he went into Egypt, and him and his wife, and they were afraid that, basically, he was afraid that they were going to kill him because his wife was really hot. And it's a big problem. It's... Having a hot wife, I guess, would cause this many problems. He's terrified; people are going to kill him all the time. I know how he feels, um, and <laughs> it's uh, it's sort of it's sort of something that that for some reason he keeps doing over and over and over again. Um, so, yeah, this happened back in chapter twelve, um, and so Pharaoh basically said, "Oh, that's that's not your wife. Oh, she's fair game then." So he didn't think that through. And then um, he, he said, well, I'm going to take your wife into my harem, basically a giant line of wives that he has um, to produce lots and lots of children for the king. Um, it's a cultural thing. Don't worry about it. Um, and so Pharaoh takes her into his house and everyone in Pharaoh's house gets afflicted uh, with like a plague. And um, he finds out that it's because Sarah is actually Abraham's wife, calls him in and says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Um, and so 15 or 20 years later, here we are again. Abraham's pulling the same stunt, for, for some reason, um, in, in another place. And so they're walking into a city called Garar. It's hostile territory. This would be the equivalent of um, you taking a walk in North Korea or Afghanistan. It, it's, it's not friendly to you, for the most part. Um, uh, you, you don't want your... Christian fish on the back of your car when you're driving across the border. You're going to want to take that off because it's, it's a scary sort of place and he has this fear of going into this city. Um, so um, he's taking extra precautions to ensure the safety of him and his family and all of his people with him while they go into the city of Gerar. And... Uh, pretty soon, the exact same thing happens again, that the king has taken Abraham's wife because he says, this isn't my wife, it's my sister, don't kill me. And the king of uh, king Abimelech says, oh, well, then again, if she's not your wife, then I want to marry her. So he's the king, what are you going to do? Takes her into his harem. Now, so at this point, I could preach the exact same sermon I preached, not going to, but I could, um, because it's the exact same thing. Um, Abraham sins, he blames it on the sins of other people, um, and he finds out that those whom he thought were were really evil and wanted to harm him actually weren't really bad guys. They were actually pretty good guys, and they wanted to do what was right. And he had basically projected all of his racism, if you will, and all of his prejudice upon the city and these people um, who really had no intent to do what he thought they were going to do. And um, people who really did actually fear God, they wanted to do right, and, and had they known Yahweh, and had they, it seems like had they known um, Abraham's God, they, they would have embraced him, but instead, he didn't go in telling them about his God, instead he went in sort of projecting prejudice onto them. It, it's really uh, an interesting thing that he does. And so, I'm going to jump right into this one, I'm not going to go at it from the same angle I did the other one, because there's no reason to, that's on the podcast, and I see a lot of things in here that, that I think we could talk about. Um, first off, the fact that he keeps doing a really stupid thing over and over. And this is just like us because we tend to do lots of really stupid things and, and expecting something different to happen or maybe it'll go better this time. And, and we basically make a big mess of our lives and we end up falling into the exact same destructive behaviors over and over and over and over again. And... Of all of the ways that, that we do this, the most often practiced way of justifying our stupid in our minds and um, in our in our really dumb decisions, we, we justify these things, um, our sinful behaviors, all of this, by blaming external circumstances. We separate ourselves from what just happened. We separate ourselves from um, uh, really any blame, any sort of responsibility for what we've done, and we kind of say... Um, look, I had to do that because of, of this, because of that, because of the other thing, because of ev- everything going on around me. There's all these different reasons why we sort of push these things onto others. Um, I mean, look at, how, look at how the first episode ended, first time he did this. And so Pharaoh calls him in and he says, um, and Abraham said, he called in Abraham and he said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me? That she was your wife. Um, And so look at how how chapter 20 ends. The same way with another king. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, 'What, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And so nobody can understand why he did what he just did. They're asking him, this doesn't make any sense that you would do something like this. What were you trying to accomplish? Why did you deceive us? Why did you lie to us? Now, all of us have something that we struggle with. And at some point, we've all been asked this question, why did you do what you just did? Like, why did you make that decision? That's a really dumb decision. Um, From our side, it doesn't seem like such a bad idea. It's we can justify ourselves the same way he did. You know, a lot of us have, um, we all have a struggle. For some people it's addiction, you know, substance abuse or pornography or sex or money or gambling. And for others, um, you do social things that somehow you think gain some kind of social kickback. You gossip, um, you do uh, commit emotional abuse, you throw temper tantrums, fits of rage, all of these kinds of things um, that, that we do and we justify our behavior by projecting all of these things onto everyone else. But the only one that actually did the thing is us, and at some point people are asking, "Why did you do that?" And you have all these reasons why you did what you did. Um, and Abraham, his sin was pimping out his wife. It's what he did basically. Um, there's no other way to describe it. Uh, he, this is a habit. I struggle with this. I pimp out my wife all the time, and he gives he gives his wife to other people in exchange for security. It's it's this bizarre thing that he does. Um, whatever it is that you regularly struggle with, the, the one thing that's almost universal is our propensity in all of these situations to blame external circumstances, blame other people for our own flaws and our own sins. It could be anything really. Um, but it always kind of looks the same. Um, we blame our job. We say, you know, if I had a better job that I loved, people treated me this way or that way, I wouldn't behave the way that I do. I, I would I would act better if my job was better. We've we've probably all said this at some point. Um, it's my income. If if only I had better pay or more money, um, I would be happier or nicer. I would make better choices. Life would be easier. Um, it, you know, if my spouse was different, if if she looked this way or if he acted this way or um, if he was more motivated or if she was sweeter and more understanding, we all just talk about if that, then I would this. We project all of these things onto other people and we say, "My, the only reason I do what I do is because everyone else does what they do and if they would stop doing that, I really, normally, given the right circumstances, I would make perfect decisions every single time but I don't because of all you people. (laughs) This is what we do and it's insane. Um, So as it turns out, you know, um, this is actually a form of idolatry. We, we convince ourselves that we could actually do better and sin less and struggle less with our issues if this or that would change. We want to change everything around us and, and we will change everything around us to our best of our abilities. We'll get everyone to line up the way we want them to but we won't change ourselves. Um, and ultimately there's really no excuse for us to fall back into these sins because we are the ones choosing to commit them. Um, as it turns out, Abraham has been doing this for a while. He made this like a regular policy of his life. Oh, one of my life policies is I pimp out my wife when I go to New Cities. Um, It it doesn't make any sense, but he was doing this, and it says this. Um, He explains, I did it because I thought, you know, there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife, Um, and besides, she is indeed my sister. I mean, technically, right? Um, She's the daughter of my father, uh, though not the daughter of my mother. Again, it's a cultural thing. Don't worry about it. Um, And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. Babe, if you love me, at every place in which we come, say of me, he's my brother. If you really love me, just tell him I'm your brother. It's, it's bizarre. And he justifies this. And he has a long list of great ways that he justifies this. I mean, look at this list. He blames society. There's no fear of God. They're just not godly people, so I have to lie to them. Ironically, um, there's, um, and then he has these technicalities. I mean, technically, she's my sister, technically. I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're going to bring legal terms into this, she's my sister. Um, and then, and then the last one, he actually blames God. He says, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, he said, at my father's house, I didn't have to act like she was my sister because my dad knew we were married. <laughs> what is he doing? Um, and, you know, so he's blaming God because of his life situation that he's in. He's blaming God. He's like, you put me here. You made me follow you out of the wilderness. Um, so, in the midst of, of of writing all of this and thinking about how we do this, I read this story that perfectly illustrated exactly um, what what this is. It's it's the story of a. Um, I thought it was hilarious. I could not stop laughing. So I'm gonna try to I'm trying to do this straight faced and serious. Um, it's the story of uh, someone who worked um, on a, on, a, on a battleship, like in the navy. Um, and and there's this guy, um, he's called the OPS, the operations officer. And uh, so the story goes like this, and try to stay with me because it's great. Uh, I was once on a U.S. military ship having breakfast in the wardroom, the officer's lounge, when the OPS, the operations officer, and he he walks in. This guy was the definition of not a morning person. He's still half asleep, he's bleary-eyed, he's basically a zombie with a bagel. He sits down across from me to eat this bagel and is just barely conscious, and my back is to the outboard side of the ship, and the morning sun is blazing in in one of the portholes, putting a big, bright circle of light right on his barely conscious face. And he's squinting and he's chewing and basically just remembering how to be alive for today, and it's painful to watch. But then, zombie OPS stops chewing and slowly picks up the phone, and dials the bridge in his well-known, I'm-still-totally-asleep voice. He says, Hey, it's OPS. Could you shift our bar pad? Yeah, 165. Thanks. And he puts down the phone. And he just sits there, squinting and waiting and chewing. And then, ever so slowly, I realize that the big blazing spot of sun has begun to slide off Zombie's face onto the wall behind him. After a moment, it clears his face, and he blinks slowly a few times. And the brilliant beauty of what I've just witnessed begins to overwhelm me. By ordering the bridge to adjust the ship's back and forth patrol by 15 degrees, he has changed our course just enough to reposition the sun off of his face. He literally just redirected thousands of tons of steel and hundreds of people so that he could get the sun out of his eyes while he eats a bagel. I am in awe. He slowly picks up his bagel And for a moment I'm terrified at the thought That his own genius may escape him That he may never appreciate the epic brilliance Of his laziness since he really won't be awake For another half hour (laughs) But between his next bites He pauses and he looks at me And he gives me the faintest sly grin Before returning to gnaw lowly On his zombie bagel So, read that Thought about it all week, it's brilliant I love it Um, This guy in charge of Hundreds of people. Sits himself in a position that hurts. It's painful. There's suns blazing on his face. Instead of sliding left or right, <laughs> he relieves himself of all responsibility for his uncomfortableness, picks up the phone and, and, and changes the direction of an entire ship of people so that he can eat his bagel without the sun in his eyes. It's brilliant. Um, and, you know, we want... This is, what, this is exactly the kind of thing that we do, and this is like this blown-up version of this but this is exactly right this guy has shown us in epic fashion exactly what we do every day um, we, we choose to do something and then and then when it's not what we think it should be we demand everything around us change and everyone around us change to meet our needs and we always want to tell ourselves that if everything around us would change we could be free ourselves from our painful situation and the fact is this is a lie because if you give an unhappy person for instance a lot of money they will be an unhappy, rich person. That's what they will be. Um, If you give a greedy person a raise, they will want another one. If you give an an abusive spouse a highly attractive, smart, totally different spouse, they are just as likely to abuse the new spouse as the old one. The problem is not on the outside. The problem is in here. The problem is us. The problem is not walking into a city, projecting onto the city like, wow, this this place is terrible. I, I can't believe... You go there, and, and I, you know, all these ways that we talk about people, out, we're just—we're taking our sin and we're projecting it onto them. When we go there, we're bringing just as much sin as anyone else that already has it there. The problem is not out there. The problem isn't here. A miserable or sinful person in one situation will be a miserable and sinful person no matter what situation you put them in because they are the ones bringing misery and sin into the situation. And until we address really our own hearts, until the gospel touches that part of our life, um, you will replay and replay and replay the same thing over and over and over again. And the fact is, the only thing Abraham can really control is himself his decisions. The only thing you can control is you and your decisions. Um, Your own personal relationship with God, the way you talk to other people, the way that you carry on. No matter what people say to you, no matter how they treat you, the only thing you can control is you. But we don't see it that way. We see it as other people are trying to control us. Other people are trying to do this and that. Um, You know, you can choose to be joyful, prayerful, trusting, holy, loving, gentle, merciful, and gracious, and Christ like in the face of any hardship, any of them. I've seen it done. Um, you, you can change anyone around you. I mean, you can't change anyone around you. You can only change yourself. And some people, honestly, are just perpetual victims. And this is a lot of us. We're just perpetual victims. We walk around thinking, I was, I was dealt a bad hand. This didn't go right. And, and you know, the first thing out of, our, out of our mouths in the morning is, you know, how's things going? Uh, I'm broke. Uh, I'm miserable. Uh, my car broke. Like, external circumstances are determining whether or not your day is lived in, in the path of Jesus and the joy and the grace and the mercy that He has given you to give to others. Like, somehow your external circumstances have determined your level of joy, and it's way down. Um,. You know, some people are just perpetual victims. Until they change their own hearts, they will continue to start every conversation with negativity because, as Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good, the good person um, out, of the, out of the good treasure in his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, um, I want you to, if you, if you have your Bible and you're flipping, there's Bibles in front of you. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that. You can, you can take that. That'll be... Um, I used to go to a church where they would have the visitors stand every week and they would give you a thing to fill out and they would say, and that pen is our gift to you. Well, you can take the Bible. So take that. Um, so uh, Matthew chapter 5. I want to spend some time there because Jesus here talks to a group of people that have it way worse than anything we've ever experienced. Way worse than anything Abraham experienced. Um... I'm going to start in verse 23, so follow along with me here. Um, And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Um, I want to stop here for a second because I, I actually, the reason I wanted to start with this passage is because it describes the kind of people that were flocking to Jesus. Jesus is just this rabbi, he's this teacher. And they don't know who he is, he's teaching something new. But he's not just teaching the same old stuff, he's teaching something that they believe. Um, and that's the difference That's why they're following him um, And look who they are They're diseased They're afflicted They're sick They're oppressed Some are paralytics They came to Jesus not, because he, not just because he could heal them Which he could But because they believed in the words that he spoke And so we need to look at What is it that he spoke That made all these people flock to him Who had terrible lives Way worse than anything you can imagine um, So Let's go down to the next uh, passage here. We're going to start in, um, uh, where are we at here? Um, verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, um, And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want you to know why Jesus spoke like this. Um, What we have here in its original context really is, is the original context was, um, there was very few people who were very rich, and the ones who were very rich were also just, most of the time, um, connected with the temple somehow, um, and connected with the Roman Empire. They were the well-to-do and they were the movers and shakers of everything. They made the laws. They um, interpreted the scriptures in a way that decided that those who were in a bad situation, those who were paupers and who were poor, were there because of um, their own sin and because uh, they didn't live up to the, the letter of the law. And so basically what they're telling them is, we are blessed because we did good. You are not blessed because you did not do good. Um, the kingdom of God is open to us. The kingdom of God is not open to you. So along comes Jesus. And he goes to all these people who have been told the, entire, uh, the, the entirety of their lives that because of your decisions and because of your sin, the kingdom, and because of your situation that you're in, the kingdom of God is not open to you. And the, this is the first time that they have ever heard that the kingdom of God is open to those who are persecuted and the poor. Um, and the humble and the meek they've never heard this and they like it and it connects to them and they follow Jesus Um, they would you know they knew they would never have money it wasn't like it was now you couldn't start from the bottom and work your way up you know Um, Drake wouldn't be singing that song sorry Um, you, you, you could not do that sorry I don't know someone made a reference this morning and it popped in my head um you could not really start from the bottom and get where you want to be. You couldn't do it. If you were born down there, you were stuck there. No way out. All right? Um, but when Jesus spoke to this massive crowd of peasants on the side of a hill, never once did he tell them, and nobody, we, don't, we don't think about this, never once did he actually tell them, you're allowed, and because of your situation, you're allowed to be miserable, you're allowed to sin, you're allowed to be... Um, anxious for everything. You're, you're allowed to blame all your problems on other people. It was actually the religious elites who were blaming the fact that the kingdom wasn't here. They were blaming that on the unrighteous people who they said the kingdom wasn't open to. Um, never once did he tell them also that, that they would be happy if they were upper class. They would never be upper class. And he didn't tell them, really, if you want to be happy, you want to have joy, you want to be righteous. The best way to do that is to be in the upper class. He never told them this. Never once did he tell them that they could go on sinning because of the position that they were in. And let's be clear. They could easily do what Abraham did and declare, well, God put me in this situation. I can blame everything I am on God because of an accident of geographical birth location. They're born in the most oppressive empire that has ever existed. With no chance of ever climbing out. And they live literally week to week, not knowing whether or not they will be alive Um, a year later because it really depended on what came up out of the ground. And the average lifespan was about 30. And they really could do what Abraham did and stand up and say, well, I blame all of this on God because I had no choice on where I was born. But they didn't. They never did that. Look, I, I want you to understand The message of of joy and happiness and purpose and and holiness in the scripture, it comes from a heart that is filled with an understanding of the gospel and God's unbelievable admiration and love of you. We spend so much time talking about a God who is standing over you with a spanking spoon waiting for you to do something wrong so he can pop you upside the head with it. Um, That is not God. God is, is, is the one who created you in this incredibly loving way and, and, had, and created you to live a certain way so you could have the most ultimate happiness. And when you didn't live that way, he joined you in this earth to kind of show you the best he can and to, to wrap his arms around you and let you know you failed. But you know what? I still love you and, and I offer you grace. I offer you mercy. And then he went to the cross and died and suffered your death to show you I'm not the one that's coming down to punish you all for everything that you do. I want you to love me and follow me and know me. I'm not here to throw you away and forget about you. I'm here to redeem you and save you. And and this is what Jesus was telling them. And he's telling it to a group of people who were in the absolute worst situation out of no control of their own. And they were joyful. And it was because Jesus was tearing down their idols He's saying, look, you can be joyful and holy and you can find salvation and redemption in your situation, no matter what it is. Jesus went to the poor who were completely broke, utterly destitute, who had absolutely no future, no voice um, to speak into the future of the world and he told them to rejoice. And the reason he told them to rejoice is because the kingdom of God is open to them and it is at their very hands and life is so much more than your external circumstances dictate that you can find joy and peace in the shalom of God in incredibly difficult times. So when you walk into your life spaces, work or or home or wherever, um, those relationships, those holidays with families, and you start to complain about how other people and inanimate objects um, are making you do this and this and how you wouldn't do these things except for these, these situations, Um. You would be happy if not for these things. I want you to think about, try thinking about maybe the the prostitute who who walked into the home where Jesus was eating and teaching. You know, how many of us say that, like, you know, money would fix really all of my problems that I have, but but there's this prostitute who walks in with basically the equivalent of a $60,000 bottle of perfume and breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. She knew better than to say that money would fix her problems. She knew better than to say that being in an upper class would fix her problems. She knew her problems were caused by herself and all she wanted to do was do something for God and it brought her this profound joy. The eyes of Jesus looking at her and saying, thank you. I love you too. Um, you know, there's no other reason for her to do that other than the fact that Jesus had given her joy and hope in her desolation. And that's inspiring, and that's why people follow Jesus, because they looked upon the face of Jesus' followers, the disciples, and they saw what they could be right now. Not in a different situation, right now. Not once they got health insurance or got a great job or were respected by other people or climbed the social ladder. And so, let's get back to the story here because there's, there's this guy, Abimelech, um, who basically falls into sin literally because of Abraham's sin. Like, he, he wouldn't have chose to sin except for the fact that Abraham hid from him that he was sinning. Um, and so look at, look at verse 3 of Genesis 20. He says, behold, God comes to him and says, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. God comes in, hey, you're a dead man. Why, what did I do? You took a man's wife. What? And he's like, he's like, what? I. Would not have done that. Um, and so Abimelech here is acting basically in accordance with his cultural rights for him. He doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. Now obviously human thought has progressed um, beyond this idea of, of how things were back then. Um, but at no point in history has it ever been okay to steal a man's wife. Ever. There's never a time when they're like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we do. We pursue each other's wives and try to steal them away. Um, that, that's never been okay. There's always been like a thing that that's, that's sacred. You don't mess with that. Um, them's fighting words. And, and so if you look closely at verse 4 through 6, um, there's, something, there's something you need to see. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. Um, basically, he didn't sleep with her. Um, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And in the integrity of my heart And the innocence of my hands I have done this And God said to him in the dream Yes, I know that you have done this In the integrity of your heart And it was I who kept you from sinning against me Therefore, I did not let you touch her Now This is incredible Because if you understand what just happened here You'll notice that Abimelech Was actually kept from sinning By God He was kept from sinning against Abraham and God By God himself Um, And it's important for you to understand because perhaps there is something that that you don't understand about even your own righteousness. You know, Abimelech stood before God and said, I acted in righteousness and God answers back, you only did what you did because I kept you from doing wrong. So not only do we oftentimes blame our sins on other people um, when things aren't going good, we blame them on, on external circumstances, but we also credit our good circumstances going on all around us to our own righteousness. We, we do this. We say, just like the Pharisees did, the, the reason that, that my life is so good right now is because God has blessed me because of my righteousness. And if we were to say that to the face of God, I, I imagine him talking to us like he did here. The reason you're righteous and the reason you didn't sin is because of me, not you. I kept you from that. Your sin is all on you to blame yourself. And your righteousness, that's, that's on me. It puts things in this perspective. I want you to think deeply about this because many of you have this, you know maybe you have an intensely great marriage and it's a source of great pride which is understandable and it's awesome and it should be but is it possible that you haven't um, done, is it possible that your marriage is together and that neither of you have fallen into like adultery or, or just a really terrible relationship? Is it possible that the reason your marriage is good is because God has kept these situations from arising all around you. This should change the way that you pray. This should change the way that you think about your marriage, your family, your life, your job. The fact that you're not in prison somewhere right now and say, Father, thank you for keeping me from those things. Thank you. The righteousness that I have, I, I, I can only throw up and, and, and thank you for it. It's, um, you know, there's... There's millions of Christians today who stand up and declare like Abraham did, we are the righteous ones who deserve the blessings of God, and they are the heathens who do not deserve the blessings of God, but they have no concept that there is a God who has been allowing them to stay holy. Would the story be different had the situation arisen? You kind of have to ask yourself at some point, if the situation arose for you to do the most egregious sin that you can think of, and nobody would ever find out, I think this was brought up on that, I think it was a Bill Murray movie, City Slickers? No, it was Billy Crystal. And the guy kind of asked him, he's like, hey, um, would you commit adultery if like someone just poof showed up and, and would you cheat on your wife and sleep with her if she knew, you knew for a fact she would fly away and never show up again? And they, they were just having this random conversation, but is it possible that even your righteousness and your faithfulness in your marriage is due to God's own hand of provision, keeping you from being put in these situations? This is exactly what happened to Abimelech. I can't imagine it's the last time he ever did that. You know, this alone should cause a lot of us to get on our knees and praise God and, and give thankfulness to Him for where we are. How many times has God held back temptations of sin upon your life? Maybe you are someone who has gone through with all these things, and you are you consider yourself like a, a, a spiritual failure a religious failure. Maybe it helps you to actually realize that as you look around at others who seem to be more righteous than you that it's an illusion. They're not more righteous than you. God has a different path for them. They have no more responsibility than you do. You both are are in charge of your own responses to the world around you. Maybe God has kept them from making some of the same mistakes as you. They're not more holy than you. Jesus is more holy than you and that's who we talk about when we talk about holiness. Holiness. There is a God who has kept from them, them from these decisions, and the danger is actually that they will never understand the grace of God to the extent that maybe you do. They have a different path than you. You are both loved intensely by God, and your joy should reflect that. And how many times have you said to God, I have been so faithful to you? We usually only pray like this to God. I have been so faithful to you. We, we pray like this when we're asking for something, basically. Why don't I have this? I've, been, I've done everything. It's like we're making a deal. Like God owes us something. You know, Jesus tells a story of somebody who kind of prayed this, this same prayer. Two people um, who went into the temple to pray, and Jesus tells a story like this. Two men went into the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He points at a guy, or even like this guy. Um, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm going to end with this passage today. I I, I think we need to take a few moments today to humble ourselves before God and, and ask for some perspective. Why don't we embrace sort of a view of ourselves that says I am responsible for the things that I have done and I throw myself upon the mercies of God and I repent and I ask God to take these things from my life. I mean, um, one of the things Jesus told us to pray was keep, lead me not into temptation. You know, asking God, keep, keep temptation from me, please. When was the last time you really prayed that? Maybe God has been doing that as just an act of grace and, and sort of secret mercy upon you. But I think we need to call that out and say thank you. Thank you for my relationships, my job. Thank you for my freedom. I'm not locked up anywhere. I haven't done that. And, and, and you're the one to thank for that. Um, so there's, I want to end today sort of with a, a communal prayer, if we could, um, before we go into a time of communion. Um, so communion servers can go ahead and get ready because we're going to right from this into communion. Um, the very first CMA church that was ever planted, um, led by uh, A.B. Simpson, it was in New York City, and, and it was, it was, Um, he was basically the the leader of this really impressive church. um, Very well-to-do people um, attended there and they hired him and they paid him really well to be the pastor there and when he got there he spent a lot of his days down at the docks um, with immigrants coming in. It was the late 1800s and he would lead these people to Christ and bring them into the church and it was causing problems because all the rich people didn't like sitting next to all these people while worshiping Jesus. Um, And Eventually, they told him, you've got to stop doing this or kind of find another place to work, so he quit. And he took all these poor people and he started a new church. And then he said they set up in a circle, um, sort of a half circle, so everyone, there was not, there used to be this hierarchy of seats in the church where, where you sat depended on sort of your status in the community. And he did his best to have sort of this round, sort of half circle thing, so everyone was sort of equal. And um, they used to start every Sunday service by praying this prayer, Um, here's sort of a picture of their place. and, And I wanted us to sort of pray this prayer out loud together before we go into communion today. So could we sort of say this out loud together? It'll be our prayer to God today. Pray this with me. We thank you, Lord, that we are poor and that we are few and that we are weak. And we throw ourselves upon the might of the Holy Spirit who has never failed us. Let's pray. Let's take communion. Father, we love you. We ask that you give us perspective, give us understanding of really who we are and who you are. Let us realize that we are all in the same boat. We are all sinners. And we are all um, in debt from a debt that we cannot pay. But you did. And help us to accept that, accept you, become followers of you, Jesus. Um, Let us multiply, let us grow. Let us become something that is a a city on a hill that is shining bright for everyone to see. Um, Let us never become... Let us never become religious. Let us never uh, become haughty and prideful. Let us be honest. Thank you, God, for all of these things in your name. Amen.